1 Samuel chapter 8. If you're using a pew Bible, that's page 216. We're going to be looking and, and covering chapters 8, 9, and 10. We're not going to read all of that content this morning, uh, but we're going to get started here in chapter 8 with the first nine verses. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 1 reads this way When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. And the name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. And they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. And then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old. It's kind of rude. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel. And they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done. From the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to, or so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. If you remember, the book of Judges ends with this particular line, and you could look back if you want and don't trust me, but it says this, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now, the author of Judges um, knew, whoever that was that compiled that history, he knew that a king was coming. He knew that this particular set of circumstances would arise. And so he means those words at the end of Judges to connect us to Samuel, uh, to make that history flow in a seamless way. But that leads us to where we are today, that we're now at that point where Israel is now demanding a king to rule over them. Uh, at the forefront of this sermon and even the ones to come, I, I want to remind you of a point that we made when we were back in Judges when we covered that line that there was no king. And here's what it says. There are the, these, these words that are spoken in Judges, those words that in those days there was no king in Israel, they're words of hope. They are words that are meant to tell us that Yahweh is not done raising up judges, raising up saviors to rule over his people. A king is coming, and in time, this is the way we worded it back then, in time we'll be tempted to think that's Saul. We're going to introduce you to him today. And then in time you're going to be tempted to think, well, that's David, but it looks beyond Saul and David and their failures, their wrecked lives, their wrecked kingdoms, and it looks forward to Jesus, the king of kings, and the Lord of Lords, who will one day soon return uh, in, to rule us in perfect righteousness. And so from the forefront of the sermon, I want you to understand that Saul is not our hope. David will not be our hope. Jesus 
will be our hope. Jesus, as we look at it today, is our hope. And so with that hope, we begin actually with uh, some words of tragedy there in chapter 8. The chapter opens revealing a familiar struggle with uh, far too many leaders uh, in Israel. Samuel, the prophet, is now old, but his sons, they are not following in his ways. One would think that maybe Samuel had picked up some lessons learned along the way, like maybe what not to do. His mentor was Eli. Eli had the sons Hophni and Phinehas, and they were a wreck in their lives, did abominable, blasphemous things. And Samuel Samuel's sons seem to be following in that same trek. Joel and Abijah are their names. Uh, Samuel appoints them to be judges in Israel in the area of Beersheba. But it says in the text that they did not walk in Samuel's ways, but they turned aside after gain. They took bribes. They perverted justice. It's not great. And this gives the leaders in Israel an opportunity to come to Samuel and to say, listen, you're old and uh, your sons, uh, they're not really righteous in what they do, so we want a king. We want a king to rule over us. And so gathering together there in Ramah, Samuel's hometown, they say, behold, you're old, your sons don't walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us, and I want you to get this verbiage, like all the nations. So what's their motives here? Are their motives simply at this point that, hey, they're looking and saying, hey, Samuel's sons, not going to rule very well. But there's another line here, we want to be like the other nations. What's the motives? Well, despite their motives, Samuel does not like this request. He's very displeased by this request. Maybe he took it personal that they don't want his family to rule over him. He's failed in some way. We don't know, but he goes to Yahweh and he prays, what are we supposed to do? And what does Yahweh say? I think Samuel was probably shocked by this, but Samuel respond, Yahweh responds to Samuel and says, give him a king. Then, then give them a king, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. It's as if Yahweh says, Samuel, don't take it personal. They're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. Now, we need to unpack a couple of things. And so the first thing that I want to unpack is this. How is their desire for a king a rejection of Yahweh? Because if we go back to the book of Deuteronomy, particularly chapter 17, you can turn there if you would like. I'm going to start reading in verse 14, Pew Bible, that's 150. Uh, here's what it says. So Moses' final sermon, uh, he's, he's about to die. He's preparing Israel for when they enter the land, occupy the land, and continue to grow. But he says this, when you come to the land that Yahweh your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say... I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. There's so many prophetic statements that we've already seen in the book of Deuteronomy that Israel just falls in line with. And then he says this, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose, one from among your brothers you shall set as a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself. 
lest his heart be turned away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of the law appointed by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. And so what's the issue here? Yahweh's already told them, you can have a king. Yahweh's not anti-king at this point, but it seems there's an issue going on here. And here's the issue. Israel is putting their stock, their trust in this fictitious king that they want. It's not an issue with having a monarchy, but it's an issue with them trusting in a monarchy to be their deliverer to be their savior. Psalm 118 reads this way, it's better to take refuge in Yahweh than to trust in man. It's better to take refuge in Yahweh than to trust in princes. And it seems Israel at this point, they're wanting to put their trust in a king that can rule over them. The second problem that surfaces in their demand is this. Uh, they desire to be like the other nations. And this flies in the face of everything that Israel is about. Israel is, in a sense, saying, uh, we don't want to be Israel anymore. Because Israel was meant to be distinct. Israel was meant to be distinct by following the, the, the words of Yahweh. They were meant to be holy and set apart. They were meant to be a, a light in a dark place. But instead, they say, we want to be like everybody else. Yes, and there's a point there to be made for us as Christians and followers of Christ today and churches today to say, hey, we just want to be like everybody else. We're meant to be distinct. We're meant to be the city that's set on a hill that cannot be hid. And we have to understand those particular points. And so if this is the case, um, why is Yahweh complying with their demand. If they're wanting this in an erroneous way, their desires are off skew, why does Yahweh say, okay, let's give them a king? Because sometimes God gives us what we want uh, to show us that our wants aren't quite the right thing. He'll give us those desires that we have so we see the full outcome of those things and in the end recognize that we truly just need him. I may be a terrible parent when I do this, but sometimes if I've instructed my boys, hey, don't do that, you're going to get hurt. Don't do that, you're going to get hurt. And uh, eventually I just stop saying that and they do it and they get hurt. And I say, hmm, <laughs> that's about it. And sometimes Yahweh does that with us. He says, okay, if that's what you want to do, then do it and you'll suffer the consequences for it and maybe you'll understand. Well, in, verse, in chapter 8, verse 9, Yahweh then instructs Samuel um, to warn them about the choice that they're making, the consequences that they have on their children. And I want to read this with you. Uh, start in verse 10 with me. It says this, And so Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king. 
And here's what he said. These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them uh, to his chariots and to be horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that particular day. What does Samuel warn him? It's going to cost you. I mean, do you really want a king? He's going to take all of your kids and he's going to use them for his service. He's going to take, uh, he's going to tax you and you're going to cry out because you're just going to feel like a slave again like you were in Egypt. And despite that warning shot across the bow, Israel refuses to listen to the voice of Samuel. And they say, no, but here shall be a king over us that we may also be like the nations, and here's what they go on to say, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. We need somebody to fight our battles, they say. Yahweh, you're great and all. Think about it. Think about what they're saying. I mean, it was just... Uh, last week we were talking about how the thunder came, right? And it disrupted the Philistines and they had to run in every which direction. And that was really great, Yahweh. Or maybe the time when we crossed the Jordan and we, we fought that battle at Jericho and all we did was really just walk around the walls and you brought them down and you won that force. That was great and all, but we really need a king to fight for us. You can see how confused they are in their thinking. Davis makes a great point, one of the commentators that I read. He said, knowledge, information, or truth does not itself change or empower. In other words, merely educating other people isn't enough. Education can clarify, but it can't transform. Samuel shot him real straight here, didn't he? And don't we see that in our own culture? We're in this culture where we think if we can just educate people enough, just give them all the information. Tell them that, hey, smoking will give you cancer. This is not good for you. Then, then they'll, they'll get it, but it doesn't, right? We recognize as Christians that there, there's a transformative work that has to happen. There's something supernatural that has to happen. And it wasn't happening in this context. And so just to be sure, Samuel takes another prayer break. And he says, okay, so they don't want you to be their king. They want another king. Are you still good with this? And Yahweh says, go for it. Obey their voice and make them a king in verse 22. Now, that wording just jumped out at me. Make them a king. Uh, everything we've looked at th thus far, what does, that, what does that sound like? Make an idol construct something and put it together. Samuel, make them 
a king. Israel already has a king. He is Yahweh, and he is a great king. But they're saying at this point, we want something more than Yahweh. Give us the desires of our heart. Once again, Israel is going to replace Yahweh. This time, it's not with some stone idol that they're going to go bow before. It's with another man. It's idolatry over and over again. It's just simply another rejection of Yahweh in a long list of rejections. Chapter 9, in a nutshell, is the story of Saul, the, the would-be king, and how he came to interact with Samuel. It's a story that reveals the sovereign hand of Yahweh, what we call providence at work in putting these two men together. It involves a lost donkey, a lot of prophecy, and I do encourage you to take some time today uh, to read that. Maybe sit down with your family, with another friend, and just read through chapter 9. We're not going to walk through all of those details, but I do want to make a couple of points about chapter 9. First of all, Saul, this king that will be, he's from the most maligned tribe in Israel. What's the most maligned tribe in Israel at this point? Well, how does Judges end? It's, it's Benjamin. Benjamin, were the, that, that was the tribe that allowed the atrocity to happen uh, with the rape, the sexual assault of, of the Levite's concubine, and then they wouldn't give them up, they, they wouldn't respond, and so there was a huge civil war where all the other tribes went to war against the tribe of Benjamin. And the first king that comes, comes from that particular tribe. It's just an interesting point. As the story unfolds in chapter 9, here's one of the things that I want you to see as you read through it. Um, Saul is portrayed as an incompetent shepherd. He can't find the donkeys. He never does find the donkeys. He finds Samuel, in a sense Samuel finds him, but, but he is portrayed as an incompetent shepherd. And in time, why I point this out now is we're going to see and be introduced to a competent shepherd. The next king, David, who, who is the shepherd who protects his sheep, who is the one who takes care of the bear and the lion in protection of his sheep. And so I believe the author is kind of setting us up to understand this comparison contrast. He's also portrayed in chapter 9 as, as not a spiritual person. Not really at all. One of the commentators pointed out three things that I thought was very interesting. Uh, one is this, he doesn't even know who Samuel is. Everybody knows who Samuel is. He's the prophet in Israel. But when his servant says, hey, let's go talk to that prophet, he's like, what prophet are you talking about? He doesn't know who Samuel is. And then when he has lost the sheep, it's his servant who suggests, maybe we should go seek some divine help. Not the sheep, but the donkeys. We should go seek some divine help. He doesn't think to seek divine help in his particular quest. And then he thinks, in the end, we got to pay for the grace of seeing the prophet. We have to give him money. We have to buy these favors. And despite all these high-flying red flags, the chapter ends with Samuel encouraging Saul, stick with me for a little bit. I want to share a word of the Lord with you. His servant goes on in front. And right out of the gate in chapter 10, we see Saul being anointed as the king. It says this, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people in Israel, and you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And so, what's up with the anointing of the head, though? This, this oil that they pour on the head. What that's meant to signify is this, the Spirit. You're being anointed with the Spirit, and that uh, you are being enabled by the Spirit to do this 
spiritual task. And Samuel then provides a set of signs for Saul. Up to this point, Saul's just kind of bumped into Samuel. They've run into each other, and, and Samuel just unloads on him and says, hey, by the way, uh, I know you're kind of looking for your donkeys, but uh, you're going to be the king of Israel. And so he gives him some signs that he'll see, and th this is how the storyline flows in chapter 10, and it's this confirmation, these larger groups of more religious people as Saul will be traveling home. And so uh, he leaves the one man, Samuel, and he encounters two men that have a connection to his family. Next, he meets three pilgrims who are on their way to Bethel to worship, and then he meets a whole band of prophets that are prophesying. And then he has really even a fourth encounter beyond that because as he's in this band of prophets who are prophesying, Saul himself begins to prophesy. And that is certainly a sign from the Lord. And I love how it reads in the story because all of the people who are watching this and seeing Saul prophesy say, that's very uncharacteristic. He was a pretty secular guy. Notice the response of the people. Chapter 10, verse 11. Here's what it says, when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, what has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul among the prophets? I mean, this is like when I go home and uh, I see people that I haven't seen since I was a kid and they're like, you're a pastor? You know, you? They would probably say that even more of my older brother, Randy, who's a pastor, he's a pastor? Really? It doesn't seem to fit. And the next lines can be a little bit confusing. Uh, verse 13 reads this way, And a man of the place answered and said, And who is their father? Now, due to, due to culture, geography, this is, it's, it's hard sometimes to jump into these ancient, these are figures of speech. It would be like if you were in Africa and uh, you were at a church and, and somebody was about to get up and do some sort of special song and you said, hey, break a leg. They would probably look at you and be like, what? You want me to break my leg? That's not very nice. Uh, but for us, we know that means, hey, get up there and do a good job. Good luck. Hope it all goes well. Uh, but for them, they don't understand it. And so trying to understand exactly what's meant by this particular figure of speech that this guy came up with is a little bit difficult. But most, it seems, at least agree that it's a statement that's meant to malign Saul and his family a little bit. It kind of became a joke. Oh, Saul. Oh, yeah, the prophet Saul. Yeah, real big prophet there. And so, a little maligning. One thing I can't appreciate about Saul, though, in these early chapters of his life, is he doesn't prematurely gloat in his newfound fame. See, as he's heading home, his uncle even inquires of him, interrogates him. What did Samuel say to you? What do you know? And Saul doesn't reveal what only he, at this point, Samuel and Yahweh know. Nobody else knows what's happening. And the chapter ends with Samuel once again bringing the people of Israel together at Ramah, or actually at Mitzvah, just north of Ramah, where Samuel's from, and, and delivering one final blow. I love this. This is so, so Baptist uh, on this particular issue of a king. And so in chapter 10, verse 17, uh, he isn't going to let it go. Notice verse 18 and 19. He says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought you up out of the land of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your destruction. 
distresses, and you have said to him, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. And so he gets that final jab in and just says, you're rejecting God, and I just want you to remember that before we proceed with the process. What a great start to a coronation service. And then through a succession of casting lots, he narrows down to the tribe of Benjamin, to the clan of Kish, and then to Saul, and announces Saul to be the king. And so Saul stands up in all of his glory. That's actually not what happens. This is a very strange scene. Saul is our new king. Saul, where are you? You know, it's like the, the pastor that's like, where are you? Where was the, a few weeks ago, I was like, Chuck, you're in here somewhere. And he was hiding behind Chase. Uh, and we couldn't see him. Uh, he's like, Saul, where are you? And, and he's not there. Saul is not in the vicinity. He is hiding in some of the baggage near the exterior of the camp. That's just weird. Now, some look at that and say, okay, because what happens after is they're like, we need to know where Saul is. And so Yahweh sends a word, he's hiding here, and they go and they find him. Some look at that and interpret it that it's Yahweh's kind of final point of saying, you can't even pick a king without me, right? You can't even find a king without me. And I can see that. But I also think what's, what's happening here is it's just a foreshadowing of, of the kingdom that's going to come. Because Saul will be... Um, a misplaced king. Saul will not be the king that Israel needs them to be, needs him to be, that Yahweh wants him to be. He will be absent much of the time, distracted much of the time. And I think it's just an instance at the beginning of this that we get, oh, that's the kind of kingdom we're getting ourselves into at this particular juncture. So, and then, then it mentions this. They ran, this is verse 23, they took him from there, and when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from the shoulder upward. This has already been mentioned previously, I think in chapter nine, but they mention it again that the king, you know, he's, he's hiding behind the baggage, and then all of a sudden he stands up, and man, he's just this mass of a human. He's big, and they say, yes. That's the kind of king we want. We want somebody that's intimidating. We want somebody that, that's, that's larger than life who will loom before us and before our enemies. And they'll be afraid of him. Tall, strong, commanding. That's the kind of king they wanted. If we were to go a few chapters into the future when Saul's kingdom has been rejected by Yahweh, he's abandoned and Samuel goes to find a new king. You may remember that scene where he enters the house of Jesse and he sees Eliab and he's like, there he is. The oldest, the strongest, the biggest, that's the next king. And Yahweh says, no, that's not him. Well, where's the next one? <laughs> so he, he pulls the next one. And, is it this? No. And they go through all the sons. And then he's like, do you have any other kids around here? Oh, yeah, there's David out in the field. And he comes in, and he's not very big. He's not much to look at. And do you remember what Yahweh says to Samuel at that point? Samuel, I'm not interested on the exterior. I'm, I'm more concerned with what's going on in the heart. Israel's failure here is they're looking at the exterior, and they're saying, 
this guy's going to be a great king. But trouble's coming. In the final scene of the chapter, Samuel records the rights of the king in a book. And they all go home. Some are happy about Saul, some not so happy. But it concludes with this, that Saul for now keeps his peace. He's, he's not going to fight against his enemies yet. He's keeping his peace. Now, once again, guys, it's a lot of story. I get that. I just walked through a lot of chapters, and really most of it we skimmed. But, but for our purposes, I want us to kind of dive back in. There's a few things I want to draw out. Some things about Samuel, some things about Saul, Israel, Yahweh. What do we take away? First, first I want to encourage you with this. Israel was off the mark in demanding a king, at least in the way they did it. As we pointed out, Yahweh was not anti-king, but the king that Yahweh had in mind for them to choose was ultimately a king that would be willing to be subservient to him. He's the ultimate king. But they didn't want that. That was not what they wanted. But the scary thing is for me is that Israel had thought this through so well. For them, as they present this argument to Samuel, it's logical. We, we need a king. It's reasonable that you should, you should give us a king, but, th but they're blinded in this instance by their own desires for the king. One of the commentators put it this way, says, our, our proposals and solutions then can be completely reasonable. Our proposals, our solutions can be completely reasonable, clearly logical, obviously plausible, and utterly godless. You can think this is the best thing to do in the world, but it's completely devoid of what God would have for you. Me and my wife have this perpetual argument when we see a certain teal color. I tend to think that that's green, and she will tend to think that that's blue. And uh, so we go back and forth. Over the years, I've convinced myself that this teal is closer to green. She's convinced herself that uh, this is closer to blue. And so we, we talk that out and try to battle that out. And if I was going to be honest, and you may, can you shut your ears for a little bit? Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> She's probably right. Um, I would never say that in front of her. Uh, but that's what happens. We reason and we justify in our minds and convince ourselves that this is the right thing. Even we take bad choices, unwise decisions, and we, we reason them. Sin, Satan, and the world deceive us. And the terrifying thing is we're so often blind to see that there's anything wrong with this. Israel went into this full-heartedly seeing nothing wrong with what was happening. And it wasn't a color they were arguing over. It was a kingdom. It was significant. But it gets worse because, because Samuel gives them two lengthy sermons. And he pleads with them. This is not the right way to do this. Open your eyes and see. But they would not listen to the voice of Yahweh. Israel hears God's wisdom I mean, for us, think about it. We're, we're watching this unfold. I'm, I'm sharing this unfold, and you're thinking, man, what a bunch of dummies. I mean, what were they thinking? They're hearing the, the, the wisdom of God, but they won't submit to it. God gives instruction, but they're not teachable. Which should lead God's current people to cry out for soft hearts. That's us. Teachable spirit. For, for preservation from the arrogance of our own stupidity. 
We need to stop and learn a lesson here because this isn't just an Israel problem. This is a human problem. We're often so convinced that we're right and we don't even listen to the word of the Lord when he says, no, you're wrong. We're blinded, we're deceived. It's the same point that we made last week where we have to watch yourselves. You have to watch for others because we are prone to wander. We're prone to, to dig our heels in and say they're, they're, that, that, that we're right, that thinking that our choices are somehow infallible. The Proverbs say it this way, there's a way that seems right to man, but the end is destruction. We're convinced we're right. Israel's stubborn choice nearly ruined the nation, but for the mercy of Yahweh. Things were not good under Saul. And this is the stuff, this right here, this, this convincing that we're right, this digging our heels in, this not heeding the word of the Lord that destroys relationships. It's the stuff that destroys marriages. It's the stuff that destroys churches because we're unwilling to submit to the word of the Lord. We're blinded by our idols, by the things that we want to see. We have to recognize and stay humble and be willing to listen, be willing to admit that we're not always right. Realize that we must listen to and obey the words of Yahweh. I'm gonna add this point in here. No matter how unreasonable they seem, Isn't it, isn't it true that in our, our culture there are a lot of people that look at the words of Scripture and say, that's just unreasonable? There's many cultural, societal issues where they say, that's just unreasonable. You need to change that. You need to change your opinion on that. Now we have to stick with the voice of Yahweh, the words of Yahweh, what He has said, He has said, and we must be willing to humble ourselves and submit to those things. And so if you're in that point right now where you're convinced that, that you're right, that everything you're doing is logical and reasoned, maybe it's time to repent and recognize that you are not infallible and seek forgiveness from the, the person that you're in an argument with or the issue that, that you're demanding is, is the way that this must be and be willing to let that go. This is a massively important point for where we are as a church right now. As we're thinking about ministry and future ministry, we have to be submissive to the Spirit and listening to what He has to say and not convinced that this is the logical and reasonable thing to do because I don't know if, if you've thought of it in a while, but God is not logical and reasonable most of the time. He doesn't work that way. Mm. Second, this church must never be about man other than the man Jesus Christ. Israel belonged to Yahweh, but they wanted to turn it over to a man. This church belongs to Jesus Christ. He's the head. He's bought it with his blood. He's bought you. He's bought us with his blood. Now, as the pastor of this church, I am called specifically to lead, to oversee, to teach, 
And in the scriptures, uh, there is uh, the, the truth that you as a part of this church are called to, to walk in obedience to that leadership as long as that leadership is biblical. As long as I am leading in what is right and clear in scripture. Here's my fear in this arena. Here's the reason I bring this point up. That Meadowview, like, like so many other churches that, that we know we can think of, I don't want Meadowview to become known associated with a man. The name of an individual or a person that's leading. A pastor rather than the Savior who gave his life for it. We must be very careful here in the way we speak, in the language we communicate so that we recognize and maintain that. Um, I, I recognize this is, this is Pastor Appreciation Month and many of you have already uh, just blessed me in that regard. Um, and it's okay to give honor to whom honor is due. That's a, that's a biblical thing. But we must protect against this becoming about a name, a group of people, um, power outside of the Spirit. And, and I, I wish I could go in and just share with you some of the recent conversations I've had with people, even locally. And their churches are not right now about Jesus Christ and His goodness and His gospel. It's become about certain people who want their way and they're wielding their power. And just like Saul, they're bringing that particular kingdom down around them. Finally, uh, it's evident throughout this story, throughout all the stories that we've talked about, that Yahweh's got a plan. Man, and he is working it. As he always has. A absolutely his plan. I love this about his plan. It, it includes the failures of Israel. So we're looking at this like, no, no, you're going to go off a cliff. This isn't going to be good. And Yahweh's, I got this. I can take your mistakes and I can redeem them. I can take the messes you make and I will make something beautiful out of them. And by the way, he does that in our lives even now. Some of you are in those situations where you're like, what have I done? Yahweh says, I've got it. Christ says, I'll redeem it. I've got a purpose for it. Just walk humbly, seek forgiveness, move forward in grace. What I want you to see though is out of the ashes of Saul's kingdom, I've already mentioned that, so there's a little bit of a spoiler alert. This isn't going to go well. Will come a king that will be what Yahweh desired back in Deuteronomy 17, to a degree. But guess what? The glory of David, this man after God's own heart, isn't David. It's that there is a promised one who will come from David's family who will be the, the true king, the, the righteous king, it will be his great, 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 great grandson. That wasn't enough greats, by the way. Jesus, who would be born. This is Yahweh's plan, not just to, to bless Israel with a truly worthy king, to, but to bless all of creation with a truly worthy king who will rule in righteousness, who will lay down his life for his friends, for his kingdom. That made me think of a particular scene that's recorded in John 18. And we'll close with this. Jesus is on trial. He's before Pilate. He's being questioned. And Pilate enters his headquarters and he calls to Jesus and says, are you the king of the Jews? 
And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answers, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and your chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. Because if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. And Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus responds, You say that I am a king. And for this purpose, I was born. And for this purpose, I have come into the world. To bear witness to the truth, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate responds with the famous line, what is truth? Is he your king? Is he your king today? Are you looking to another human to trust in, to be your savior, to be your rescuer? Maybe you look to yourself. You look in the mirror and say, I can do this. I can be good enough. You cannot. This is the purpose for which he came. Jesus may not stand above others, as a matter of fact, Isaiah describes that he will be one that people don't really even notice from a physical standpoint, kind of like a David. But he has been given a name that is above every name. And at that name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is the Lord, that he is the King. Is he your King today? Thank you.